Several years ago, a friend of mine, Jonathan Schwer, invited me to go with him on a caving trip. I felt fairly honored because he was a professional caver. He was exploring a cave near Mammoth Cave up in Kentucky that was not attached, but it was one of the world's fourth largest caves. And he was surveying this cave and he said, Chris, we've got a, a section that we've found. It's in a new area, but we haven't surveyed it yet. I'd like for you to come with us and, uh, and you can see what we do and uh, just enjoy the experience. I was like, hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. So um, I left early my house here Sunday morning, probably three or four in the morning to arrive up at his place around six in Cave City, Kentucky. And we got our gear together <clears throat> and we went to the site. It was a low depression in the ground and they had uh, blasted a hole through the ground uh, till, till they came in the top of a dome and they had put a pipe in it that was a large corrugated, it was a three foot diameter corrugated pipe and it filled back around it so you could access the cave through the top of this dome. So they opened the lid and we hooked up our ropes and we rappelled down through this little narrow thing and I came out in the top of this dome. It's beautiful. My light shone and I rappelled down to the bottom and unhooked. And I was excited. I had never been on a cave expedition this long before. I'd been in a couple hours, but this was due to be 12 hours plus. And uh, it was an experience like none other. I, I, we traveled for seven hours until we reached the location, this, this new place, and began to do some surveying. And that was an interesting experience. One person has a little light and the other person shines a, or looks through a little uh, inclinometer and, can, and they can kind of tell the angle with a compass and, and they measure back and forth from each direction so it's accurate and they mark down their measurements. So we did this for several hours. We'd been in the cave for about nine hours at this point. We still had a seven hour return trip out and uh, we decided it was time to go. So we packed up our things and we're headed along. Um, about 30 minutes into the tr return trip, Jonathan remembered that he had forgotten. Have you ever remembered that you've forgotten? It's kind of embarrassing. So Jonathan remembered that he'd forgotten a very important bag back at where we had been. And he said, guys, just go on ahead, I'll catch up. And so he went back. So we went on and we came to this long crawl passage. It was about uh, 300 feet and it was about this tall. You couldn't squat, uh, you could only crawl. And I had a, I had a small caving backpack and then I had another pack that I was bringing as well. I, when I was standing, I was wearing one on the front, one on the back, and I had a rope that was over my shoulder. And I got to this section and I couldn't go through it with the same gear on, and I had to hang my backpack on the front. So I was crawling with this backpack underneath, and then I had a little piece of webbing attached to my foot that I hooked my other bag to, and I was pulling it with my foot. So I was crawling like that underneath this, this passageway. And we got partway through, and uh, I was tired. I had to rest for a moment. So nothing I could do but just lay down on top of this bag. And this bag began to press on my bladder. <laughs> and I realized it's been a while. And I immediately thought of my wife being pregnant, experiencing pressure on her bladder. I had some maybe inkling of what it felt like. I don't know. I can't say for sure. But it was very uncomfortable. And so I laid there for a little bit and then I decided it was time to continue on. The man that was in front of me, Mike, was an older guy. When we had started the trip, I wondered, uh, is he gonna make it? <laughs> uh, he was smoking one cigarette after the others, I recall, and his health seemed poor. As I was ready to crawl, I, I noticed that Mike had stopped moving. And so I crawled up near his feet. Hey, Mike, you ready to go? 
No answer. Hey, Mike, you ready? No answer. I'd like for you to join with me as we go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. As we open God's holy word, let's pray. Father in heaven, it's with holy awe that we come before this book that has been preserved down through the ages. Blood has been spilt. Lives have been shed. That we can read this book in our own language. Lord, as we explore this subject, help us to rightly value this book. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the words are said, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul felt that this, the scriptures were of value to Timothy and that they had led him in a direction, salvation. But many today question the validity of the scriptures. They say, how can they be preserved down through the centuries? Are they even valid today? Are the Bible documents reliable? So I want to look at that with you today. The scripture says, you can see it on the slides there, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke. They recorded those words. And it was through that that God has communicated with mankind. We're told in Exodus 17 and verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. Moses was one of these holy men and he wrote and he put it in a book. What book could that have been? Exodus 24, verse 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. This seemed to be a habit for Moses. He wrote a lot, and we can see why. In Acts 7, 22, we're told, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Moses had learned how to write. He was a well-educated man, and when it came to communicating what he understood God was saying, he would record it down in a book so it was, it was there. We're told in Mark 12, verse 26, as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spoke to him? What, bush, what book could this have been? The burning bush. This would be Exodus, right? The book of Exodus was referred to as the book of Moses. Luke 24, 25 through 27, then he said to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Moses wrote the book of Exodus. As a matter of fact, we understand that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And then the prophets wrote these other books. So Moses wrote those, but we don't have any actual book of Moses today, the actual one that he wrote, because he wrote it on skin. 
and that skin has long since been eaten up by rats and it's gone. We have no actual copy of the book of Moses or any of the copies of the prophets. So how do we get them? Well, scribes were very careful and then they would write down from what uh, they would copy one manuscript to another manuscript. And, and I have here the, the process that they did this by. It's very interesting. They had to have a clean animal skin, both to write on, and then after they had written it and rolled it up in a scroll, then they had to have another clean animal skin that went around it. So it was preserved in that way. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. Very specific amount of lines in each column. The ink must be black, and it was from a special recipe. Uh, the scribes had to verbalize each word aloud while they were writing. And the, each word, they had to verbalize it. And then they must wipe the pen clean and wash their entire bodies before writing the word Jehovah, Yahweh, the sacred name. There must be a review within 30 days, and if as many as three pages required corrections, the entire manuscript had to be redone. Can you imagine? You finish writing Jeremiah, you get done, three pages have little tiny mistakes, and they have to get, be done. You have to do it, start all over again. Not only that, the letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted. So they would count from the beginning, word, one, two, three, four, five, all the way to the end. And then they would count the letters, each letter all the way to the end. Then they would count from both ends to the middle. And that middle word had to be a certain word. And then they would count the letters to the very middle. And that letter had to be a certain word. And if it was wrong, the whole document was scrapped. They were very careful in the transmission of the document. The documents could only be stored in sacred places such as synagogues. And no document containing God's word could be destroyed. So they would put them in hidden places, typically either in a synagogue or in a Jewish cemetery. So they were very careful in their transmission. So what is the oldest Hebrew scriptures that we have today? The oldest Hebrew scripture we have today is called the Leningrad Codex. And it's called codex and not scroll because it's like a book form. It's got pages that you turn. The Leningrad Codex. This was found in 1947, and it's in Leningrad. Um, and it is um, dated to about 1008 AD. AD. That's the oldest Old Testament manuscript we have. And you think, how in the world can that be reliable? Would you like to see an actual picture of one of the pages? This is an actual picture of one of the pages. This is Daniel chapter one, and it's written from right to left. Um, so we're very fortunate to have this. There was an older copy called the Aleppo Code, but it was destroyed in, in a war. It was mostly burned, and it's, it's uh, very unfortunate we don't have that anymore. But this, this book is uh, the oldest that we have. Our Bible today is based on the uh, Hebrew text there. This, this manuscript had, or this, uh, Codex had all the books of the Bible that we currently have except for the book of Esther. So how do we know that this is accurate? Well, there was a lot of argument against that until several years ago in 1947, I think it was, there was a shepherd over in Qumran in the Dead Sea area and he threw a stone up into a cave and he heard a, something clink, something sounded like it broke. And he went up and he found these scrolls and we know those to be the Dead Sea Scrolls. So every book in the Old Testament was found 
there except for the book of Esther. Um, and th these Dead Sea Scrolls dated from about uh, 100 BC up to 100 AD. So this was a thousand years older than the oldest Hebrew manuscript we have. And so there was a lot of excitement and it took years to get this information together. And then they began to compare the differences between the Leningrad Codex and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we're gonna look at what was said in Isaiah 53 as one of the chapters that was explored. And we're gonna see some of the differences. In Isaiah uh, 53, there was only 17 letters that were different from the Masoretic text. 17 letters. 10 of those differences were in spelling, as in from honor to honor, with a U in there. Uh, four of those had minor differences where they used a contraction, can't instead of cannot, uh, so a preference in writing. And then there was only one major difference, and that is the use of three Hebrew, let Hebrew letters to spell the word light. And it was added in verse 11 after they shall see, they shall see light. It did not change the meaning of the text at all. Isaiah 53 is a, virtually exactly the same form after a thousand years. And the entire book of Isaiah is a similar uh, example as this. The scriptures have been preserved by the mighty hand of God. There's 166 words in that chapter and only one was different. And it didn't even change the meaning of the words. So let's move to the New Testament a little bit. How did Jesus view the scriptures? Matthew 22, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Jesus saw that the scriptures could correct confusion. They could correct things that were wrong. He saw them as authoritative in your life. John 10, 35, Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus saw them as a unified whole because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were one continuous message from God to man. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus saw that the scriptures were something that could save your life. That when faced and facing temptation, the scriptures could give help and power. Jesus saw the scriptures were valid and worth placing one's life in. Here's this interesting scripture in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The scripture says, the whole thing, right? The scripture says, the first portion of that is, is a quote from Deuteronomy 25, verse four, and the second portion is a quote from Luke 10, verse 10. The first one is from the Old Testament. Paul here in Timothy sees that Christ's words in Luke and Matthew were scripture. This is an interesting thing. This is where we see that those in the New Testament saw the writings of the New Testament as scripture. This in, in, in reference is the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They saw them as part of the whole portion of God's scripture. Peter says something interesting, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother, Paul. Paul kind of threw Peter for a loop sometime with his reasoning. Just as our beloved brother, Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. 
Paul, other scriptures. He saw Paul was included in the scriptures. According to Peter's perspective, Paul, Paul's writings were part of the canon of scriptures. So we see the, the New Testament scriptures beginning to form, beginning to come together. Now the Old Testament scriptures had taken thousands of years to come together and become a cohesive book. The book of Psalms was the hymn book for the Hebrews. <coughs> Excuse me. And different parts were added over time. It didn't just get written in one portion. And there was different people that wrote different hymns that were added to the book of Psalms. That, that took a period of seven or 800 years for the book of Psalms to be written. And then you had Moses' writings, and then finally you come all the way to the end, you've got Malachi, you've got this whole portion of scripture. It took thousands of years for it to become codified as a group and to be called the scriptures. The New Testament was different. It took a much shorter period of time. The oldest book that was written, we believe, to be the Gospel of John, about 90 AD. So it took a span of about 40 years for the New Testament scriptures to be written. Those scriptures were uh, written in Greek, and we have at this time about 5,800 Greek manuscripts or fragments. It's a staggering amount of Greek manuscripts demonstrating the validity of the New Testament scriptures. There are about 10,000 Latin manuscripts and 9,300 manuscripts in other languages like Syriac, etc. By comparison, other ancient literature works such as Homer's Iliad. It has 457 papyri, two, uh, I'm not sure how to say that word, unsealed manuscripts, and 188 minuscule manuscripts. Um, so there's a vast amount of more uh, evidence that the New Testament scriptures are valid and authoritative. So how did the uh, apostles view the scriptures? 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The apostles saw the scriptures as authoritative, including the New Testament scriptures, as authoritative in a person's life. Not just something to be aware of, oh, that's an interesting book, but that that book should change you. It should have power to move you, and your life should be different because of it. Peter says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Scriptures were given to mankind, not to a specific individual. For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now we do not believe in what's called verbal inspiration, where God spoke a sentence and then Ezekiel wrote that sentence out. And then he spoke the next sentence and Ezekiel wrote that sentence out. What we understand the scriptures teach is thought inspiration, where this thought is communicated, a man is inspired, and then in his own words, he writes out that thought. Now, it's pretty self-evident if you read the scriptures much. I mean, Matthew sounds different than Mark. Mark's got a muscular gospel with lots of exciting stories. You read Luke, it's a little bit different. It's a little more sequential in its thematic way. You read John and it's different as well. The writers would write in their own flavor. 
in their own way, in their own words. They were not writing the exact words that God put in their head. Now, this is an important point. Because we come to a portion called discrepancies. As young people grow up, they get older and then they go off to college. And at college, they're confronted by professors whose single goal is to undermine their faith in God's word. They will point out these discrepancies in the scripture and this would be the first time a lot of these young people have ever heard of these discrepancies and their faith is shattered. God must not be real. How can this be? I believe that as Christians, we should know our Bibles better than the skeptic. If they raise an argument, we should already know that argument and we should know the answer to it. So I'm gonna share with you some, quote, discrepancies that are in the scriptures. If these are the first time you've ever seen these, it may be a little bit of shock to you. It was to me the first time I saw them. But it doesn't undermine the infallibility of God's word. It helps us to understand rightly how God has communicated to mankind. We need to understand how he inspired these prophets so that when we're encountered by skeptics, we know the answer. So let's look at some of these. Mark 5 and verse 2. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Amen. Matthew 8, 28 says, And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergenses, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fear so that no man might pass by that way. Amen. Two mans. So a skeptic would say, oh, there's a difference. See, you can't trust the Bible. <coughs> now, I'm not convinced that their argument is valid. If you go to any accident site and you have two people, they will remember different things from that accident because of their perspective. Maybe there was a clown driving in the car and, it had, and he had just the regular passenger beside him. And they remember that there was a weird driver <laughs> in the car. And so in their report, I remember seeing a person in the car. They didn't really notice the other person, but did that mean there wasn't two people in the car? No, that's just what they recalled. The scripture is transparent in this. There hasn't been an effort to try to, try to cover up these differences. It's there because the human writers wrote in their words from what they understood. Now, if there was one man or two men, does that change the meaning of the story? Did Jesus free somebody from the power of the demons? Was Christ's power available to heal? Yes. The meaning of the story is lost not at all, whether there was one man or two men. In fact, for me, this strengthens my faith in the Bible, that it was written by real people that were inspired by God to record these things. Rather than undermining the Bible, it actually strengthens the case that the Bible is a valid book. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. <laughs> if you do indulge in sexual immorality, it will lead to mortality, um, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So this is Paul in 1 Corinthians. What it actually says in Numbers 25 is, nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. 23,000, 24,000. Is this evidence that Paul was not inspired? No. Paul did not carry around all the scrolls for the entire Bible and then put them down to, to make a reference. In his mind, he tried to remember, what was it, 23, 24,000? I don't remember. Anyway, he writes down what he remembers it being. They didn't carry the scrolls around. They were kept in synagogues. And in fact, to go to 
uh, um, Numbers 25, he would have to get the scroll of Numbers and unroll it all the way to the end to find this quote. I mean, it's not like our little you know, phone we pull out today and can look at real quick. No, it was a process to find, was it 23,000 or 24,000? He recalled, oh, it was a lot of people, and he was close, right? Does 23,000 or 24,000 change the inspiration of Paul? Not at all. Does it change the meaning of the text? No, we know what he's referring to, and those people died because of their sexual immorality. Don't be like that. The meaning is still there. Matthew 26, 34, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. <coughs> and then in 1 Corinthians 10, 8, that's not 1 Corinthians 10, 8. This is an evidence of, of uh, copying incorrectly. Um, I believe this is as in uh, Luke and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, twice, you will deny me three times. So before the rooster crows and before it crows twice. Hmm, who was right? Well, one of them was right. Um, possibly as Matthew was writing this account, um, he remembers more correctly than, this might have been Mark or Luke, one of the two of them. They got their account through eyewitnesses uh, Mark probably through Peter and Luke probably through, I'm not sure. Um, but he did some investigation to find out where this came from. So there's a difference there. Are you comfortable with that there's a difference? Does this undermine the inspiration of Matthew, Mark, or Luke? Not at all. Does the fact that it was crow tw <laughs> crowing twice or once change the meaning of what happened? The rooster crowed and Peter denied him three times. The meaning is still there. Skeptics will raise these accusations, but they're baseless and meaningless. We can still have confidence in God's word. It's the message is completely infallible. And what I mean by infallible, there's a difference between infallible and inerrant. According to the scripture, what is error? Falsehood, yes, lies. Deception, right? Um, but in, in mathematics, one plus one equals three is an error. So there's a difference between a, a technical scientific error and a deception, wouldn't you say? So the scriptures have some differences in them, but the message is not an error. The message is true. The message is true and powerful. Okay, Matthew 27, 9. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Well, we find that not in Jeremiah, but in Zechariah. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So when Matthew was writing this, and he was remembering who wrote it. He didn't have the scroll with him. It would have been in the synagogue, but he remembered it being Jeremiah. Now, you remember Jeremiah does talk about a potter. And so in his mind, he might have been thinking, the potter. That's where it was. But in fact, it was in Zechariah. Does this misquote of Matthew mean that Matthew wasn't inspired? 
No, he was a human. He was writing in his own understanding and he was tying this to a scripture and he thought it was there, but it was in a different spot. Well, we know where that scripture is. It doesn't change the meaning at all and doesn't undermine the power of God's word. God's word is power to change lives because the message doesn't change. We have this message clearly in Matthew 27. So what about the Apocrypha? There are a lot of those who wonder, should we have these additional writings in the scriptures? The Roman Catholic Church has them in in their books. Maybe we should have them as well. Well, the word Apocrypha means writings not considered genuine. When the reformers explored these books, they determined that they were not genuine and should not be included in the rest of the scripture. And so they left them out of the different translations that they did. It's interesting to note that the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it included the Apocrypha about the first century AD. Um, But Jesus and the disciples never quoted from the Apocrypha. They did not see it as authoritative, and frankly, neither do I. Here's a quote from the Apocrypha. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Those who give, give alms will enjoy a full life. Now, is that a true statement? If you, if you give tithe or offering to God, uh, does that save you from death? I think we're told differently that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And so it has elements in it that are not true. And there's some historical elements in the um, Apocrypha, like the Maccabees, that tell us about a historical era, but they are not considered to be scripture. So how did we get the New Testament scripture? Well, Paul told the Colossians, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodicea. So when Paul wrote a letter off to a church, he expected them to read it in the church, and then send it on to another church, and it would be shared around. In 1 Thessalonians, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. So Paul was expecting that his letters would be read in the churches, and they were, and they were shared around, and they got worn out. But before they were totally worn out, someone got another uh, manuscript copy of something, and they wrote it down, and, and uh, it was um, written on different manuscripts, and that's how we ended up with the 55,800 manuscripts that we have, but those original manuscripts were, uh, were, were destroyed. We don't have those any longer. But <clears throat> if we want to see, is what I have in the scripture accurate? We can compare it to those manuscripts. If anyone tries to say that, that this translation is not correct, well, we can go back to the, to the Greek manuscripts and we can compare, and there's so many of them that we can find the evidence within those scriptures. So how did we get the English Bible that we have today? Well, this started about 400 AD with the Latin Vulgate, and that existed for almost a thousand years, the Bible in Latin. And then John Wycliffe had a burden that people understand the Bible in their own language, and he translated the Bible in 1380. He died in 1384. Uh, He translated it into English. His Bible was updated by John Purvey in 1388. In 1526, that existed for hundreds of years, by the way, It was a word-for-word translation, and it was a fairly poor translation because the Greek manuscripts he used weren't uh, as accurate as some of the ones that we know to be accurate today. So in 1526, uh, William Tyndall, that's funny, um, he gave us the English New Testament based on Greek. 
1560, we have the Geneva Bible by William Whittingham. And this is the Bible that Shakespeare, the Puritans, the pilgrims used. But it wasn't to be preferred because it had Calvinistic marginal notes that would lead one towards a predestinate view of humanity. So there was a desire by Protestantism to have their own scriptures. Well, the Catholic Church beat them to it in 1593 with the Douay-Rheims Bible, which includes the Apocrypha and um, certain slants from the Catholic Church. It, wasn't, it was not an unbiased Bible. So in 1611, finally the authorized version, the King James Version was published, and <clears throat> the version we have today is not the original King James Version. I have one of those at home, and you can hardly read it. The, the wording is so different. And it was edited numerous times, 1629, 1638, 1729, 1762, and 1769 is the current version that we have of the King James Version. So since the King James Version, there have been multiple translations of the English Bible, and many people wonder, which Bible do I use? Which is, which is a, a trusted one and what is not? Well, it seems to me that there should be an understanding of how the Bible's translations come to be. They're not, um, they're not published with the same intent behind them. There are word-for-word -word literal translations. And then there is thought-for-thought -thought translations. There's benefits to both. But before I explain to you some of the difference between word-for-word -word and thought-for-thought, -thought, I want to talk about idioms. Not idiots, but idioms. Idioms. So what's an idiom? Uh, an English idiom that we have here in America is all over the map. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they just don't seem to stay on track, like they're here and there and uh, just all over the map, right? So another idiom, blow off steam. You ever had to blow off steam? You're like angry or you're frustrated. I'm gonna go to the gym and blow off steam. Just get rid of that frustration. That's an idiom. Now, that's hard to translate. Someone that's coming from Mexico may not really understand what you mean. Blow off steam, huh? Um, a catnap. <laughs> now, we all like a catnap, but that's an idiom. Uh, head over heels. That was me for my wife, and still is. Head over heels in love. Two peas in a pod. It's an idiom. Similar, right? Now, I want to show you some idioms in a different language. Um, you have tomatoes in your eyes. If someone said that to you, would you understand? No, you don't understand that because this is in German and it means you're not seeing what everyone else can see. It refers to real objects, not abstract meanings. Kind of like you can't see the tree because of the forest. You have tomatoes in your eyes. To buy a cat in a sack. To buy a cat in a sack. That a buyer purchased something without inspecting it first. It's an idiom. Uh, they use that uh, in Germany. Here's a Russian one. Um, the thief has a burning hat. He has an uneasy conscience that betrays itself. The thief has a burning hat. Pay the duck. Probably one of my favorite. Pay the duck. Uh, this is Portuguese, and it means to take the blame for something you did not do. You pay the duck. Uh, did an elephant stomp on your ear? Doug Pratt, you would probably appreciate this one. It means you have no ear for music. <laughs> Did an elephant stomp on your ear? My wife is going to be using that for me from now on. That's a Polish idiom. So when we have idioms like this, we use them a lot in our language. Um, it helps us communicate a thought, a meaning, a feeling. 
And the Hebrews were no different. They used idioms in their language. And in fact, in Hebrew, Hebrew was written differently than we write in English. It was written from right to left. And they have their verbs differently than we have ours. And so it's hard to translate exactly word for word what was said. If you translated an idiom word for word from one of these that we read into English, we would not understand it. So word for word has its disadvantages because it doesn't always convey the thought that the author was trying to communicate. We have that breakdown in any language, whether it's from Spanish to German or German to Ukrainian or, or Ukrainian to English. There's gonna be this breakdown in language, this cross, there's things, some things you just can't even translate. The Hebrew word chesed, you cannot literally translate that word into English. We can approximate, but we can't translate that word exactly. So word for word translations break down at a certain point. Um, and so a thought for thought translation is helpful so that we can get an insight into what's being said. Um, but a thought for thought translation has its disadvantages too because the translator then is translating what they think that thought should be. And now that translator is interpreting for us. And I'm uncomfortable with that. I wanna be the interpreter. Right? So if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, you're dependent on those who have authored these scriptures to help you understand what was meant. So we have these two different th uh, ways of translating word for word and thought for thought, and there's sometimes a blending of the two. We have so many scriptures, King James Version, American Standard Version, all the way over, New American Standard Bible, uh, all the way over to New Living Translation, the Message Bible, um, a spectrum of Bibles that are translated different ways, trying to communicate word for word or thought for thought or somewhere in between. So when you're going to the scriptures and you're wanting to understand specifically this word, you're gonna want a Bible that's more word for word. If you're reading through and you're trying to get the thought of what's being communicated, you're gonna want something that's thought for thought. So it's helpful to look at a balance of the scriptures and see what the different translators had to say. You're welcome to take a picture of this if you wanna to refer to this later as you're looking at Bibles. Um, this is kind of the spectrum of where these different Bibles fall in relation to word for word or thought for thought. The King James Version is very literal, very word for word. Uh, it sometimes it's hard to really understand what's being said. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum the Message Bible which is you know, very loose uh, when it comes to the word-for-word -word translation, but it'll help you get the thought. So it's helpful as you're studying the Bible to compare different translations to give you a better insight into what is being said. I hope that's helpful. <clears throat> so how should you treat your Bible? I only say this because I learned at a certain point that a Bible wasn't like any other book. A Bible was a holy book that was to be used in a special way. And I learned that I shouldn't set my Bible on the floor, down where all the dirt and trash is. If you have your Bible tucked under your pew right now, I'm not looking, I'm not judging. Um, but to put something else on top of your Bible shows that it's of a higher importance. Stack other books up on top of it, um, to just throw it carelessly, toss it on the floor. This book is a holy book and we should treat it with the respect it deserves. This 
is the single revelation of God to man that's been communicated. Through this, we understand what God has done to save mankind. We should treat this book carefully and with respect. The word of God is powerful. I want to look at that with you in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, God had created in six days through the means of the spoken word. And God, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God's word had power to bring things to life. God's word is powerful. And then in Genesis 1 and verse 27, we're told, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said to them, multiply, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. God created everything and then he created Adam and Eve. And I wonder, why did God do that? He could have done it the other way around. I mean, wouldn't that have been exciting? Like to be Adam and Eve created first. All right, guys, sit right here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna create light. Let there be light. And, and light comes to be and, and they would jump out of their chairs. Praise God, your power is majestic. Holy is your name. They could have seen God do that, but he didn't. Day two, when he created on day two, what was that, land, water, let there be land separated from the water. They could have watched this happen and then vegetation spring forth. They could have seen this, but they didn't see any of it. And the only way we know it happened, the only way they know it happened is because God set them down on day six and he said, Adam and Eve, I wanna tell you something. Six days ago, I said, let there be light. And there was light. They learned from the mouth of God that he had created. The very first lesson that Adam and Eve had is they learned to trust the word of God was true. They had to have faith in the word of God that it was true. The very first lesson God wants us to have is that this word is true. He wants us to have faith in the word of God. Genesis chapter 15. There was a man who was called Abram. Genesis 15 and verse one. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, fear not Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abram, Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Maybe he could be the one. And verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look towards heaven and look at the stars and count them if you are able to number them. And see, so he said, so shall your seed be. So shall your seed be. And then verse six, so he believed the Lord and God counted to him for righteousness. The lesson God wanted to teach Abram 
was to believe his word because his word is true and his word will happen. The lesson of faith. Abraham was the father of the faithful and we are his children if we have faith. And if we have faith in his word to do what he says it's going to do, it says, and he counted to them for righteousness. For righteousness. They weren't righteous. He wasn't righteous by anything that he did. He was righteous by the word of God. He was righteous by faith in the word of God. Now, don't be confused. Faith is not a work. I have to have a lot of faith. Faith is simply connecting to power. I was working on a house and I'd done some electrical work there and um, when I had uh, sliced the wire back, um, I had somehow gone a little too far into the, into the wire and I didn't realize it and I took off the outer section but, but that slice had gone a little too far and, and, I, and I put the wire nut on it but that slice went past the wire nut and I put it into the metal box and it wouldn't quite fit and I had to kind of push it down in there and I screwed the metal lid on it and then turned the power on. But it was attached to wood so nothing really happened. But I, something wasn't working quite right so I went up in the attic and I was crawling across the joist and I touched that metal box and it lit me up. I touched it and by touching it, I received a shock. There was power that really made me feel different. Um, faith is kind of like that. Faith is simply touching the source of power. Faith is not power. Faith connects us to the source of life, the source of power, the source of righteousness. Faith isn't something that you have. It's simply, simply just trusting. Lord, I, I believe you. I trust you. That was Abraham. Lord, I believe your word. And that connected him with a source of power. And he became righteous. Matthew 5. Matthew 5. And verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. How do we become righteous? By faith in the word of God to do what it says it will do. Do you hunger and thirst after God's word? after the righteousness that comes by faith in him. Blessed, do you want that blessing? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. It's very interesting. John chapter six. Jesus had just come over the <clears throat> Sea of Galilee. He had fed the 5,000 on the one side and he comes over to the other side and the people noticed the next day he wasn't there. And they're like, where'd he go? And they cross the sea and they find him on the other side. And they said, how did you get here? And Jesus answered in John 6, verse 26, verily, verily, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. You had 
You had a physical blessing by following me. And so you're after that. And verse 27, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And they said, Lord, evermore, give us of this bread. What can we do that we work the works of God? In verse 29, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they said, well, show us a sign. God gave our fathers manna, what can you do? And Jesus said in verse 32, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread. And they said, Lord, evermore, give us of this bread. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Do you hunger and thirst for that which only God can give? I am the bread of life. Jesus pushes this envelope further. In verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and if any man eat this bread, he will live forever. And the Jews were upset about this. How can we eat a man? Verse 53, Jesus pushes it even further, and he says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I tell you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Now to a Jew, drinking blood, eating a human, this was anathema. No, no, they could not accept it. But Jesus said, you can't even just think about it. Unless you do this, you have no life in you. Verse 56, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. It was because of this saying, because of what Jesus said right here, was a dividing line where many left him and only a few stayed. This point, these words, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, people left him. Verse 63, Jesus explains what he's saying. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh does not profit anything. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. The scripture isn't just any old book. It is spirit and life. And Jesus said, except we eat it and we drink it, as a way to connect with the Son of God, we have no life in us. Why is it we value this book so little? It's been preserved through ages, through millennia. Blood has been spelt, spilt. To give us this book in our language so that we can Eat the flesh of the Son of God. What does it mean to eat his flesh? When you eat something, you chew it. And it starts to break down in your mouth. It goes down your esophagus. It breaks up in your stomach. Then it goes into your small intestine. And your body says, ah, yes! And it grabs those nutrients and it runs in and it takes it and it puts it all over your body and it puts it into your fingernails and into your fingers. And your, you become what you eat. Your body is so excited. You can't just eat something and have it pass through unless it's fiber. Right, Mr. Nelson, Dr. Nelson? 
What you eat changes you. It becomes you. You are what you had for breakfast yesterday and the week before, day by day by day. What you eat is you. And Jesus said, unless you eat the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Why do we spend so little time with that which will give us life? Something like that is worthwhile. In early Christian America, there was two books that were printed and read in every home. Just two books. The Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox's Book of Martyrs. I read it one time. That was enough. It's a powerful book. I recommend it to you. Um, find it online for free. In there is a story told about a man who it was found out that he believed that the scriptures teach that the little wafer for communion isn't really the body of Jesus. In fact, it's just a symbol. It's a symbol that teaches us about Jesus. And he rejected the Catholic idea that that wafer is the actual body of Jesus. And he says, no, regardless of what you say, I want what's in here. I refuse to believe that. Because he held onto the Bible, he was taken into the inquisitor. They quizzed him. Do you believe this? Yes. You don't believe in transubstantiation? No, I don't believe in that. It's not true. And he was condemned to die. His last night on earth, inside of his cell, he said, please, can you bring me some bread and grape juice? And based on what the scriptures teaches, he had the last supper. There's some things that life isn't worth. And one of them is compromising God's word. There's some things that are worth dying for. It not only gives life, but it gives life so meaningful, it's worth dying for. I'm not afraid of death because this book says something, better is coming. The next day this man was taken out, tied to a stake with green wood that was wet, and died a slow, painful death. Why? Why would someone do something like that? Because he tasted that the Lord is good. He found one who said, my life is not worth heaven without you. He found truth in Jesus. I believe he'll be resurrected in that last day. This book, is the Bible reliable? Amen. Amen. I was lying in this cave on top of a bag. 
behind a man who wasn't answering me. My mind began to think, I'm a long way under the ground. Like this, it only has to move a little bit and I'm grease. What if, what if Mike, hey Mike, hey man Chris, I'm just sleeping, all right? We're waiting on Jonathan. Okay, so he's sleeping. So I just laid there thinking, thinking, thinking. What if something happens to these guys? How will I ever get out of here? I was in a position, I was in a place where unless someone led me out, I would never make it. I was hopeless. I was hours underground. There's no way. Eventually, I heard some noise behind me. Like, hey, Mike, Jonathan's here. Oh, I want to sleep some more. Okay. He started crawling. I followed Mike. 17 hours under this dark earth. And we found the rope that led up to the light. We hooked on our ascenders and we climbed out. It felt good to be outside. If you've been underground for a while, it feels good to be in the light. Some of us are underground. Some of us don't know how to get out. There is no human being that has that answer. It's found here. One has come and he's written a message. Oh, it's a few things here, there, two versus one. The message is true. This is how you get out. Do you want out? I don't know that I rightly appreciate this book. So I'm going to give an opportunity for anyone who wants to commit themselves afresh to God to come up here. If you want to commit yourselves afresh to the word of God, which is able to save to the uttermost, I'm going to invite you to do something awkward. To come join me up here and say, I commit myself to this word. God bless you. I want Jesus more than anything. I want his word to change my life. I want the Bible to be my soul guide. Lord, I pray that these distractions that are all around us will not prevent us from spending time with the word of God is able to save to the uttermost. If you want to commit yourself afresh to God's word and the life-changing power he has for you, I invite you to come forward. Father in heaven, you see the commitment that's here. Not because we're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but because we want to be connected to the source of all power.
We want to be connected afresh to you. We stand here because we recognize your word is true. We want its power in our life. Lord, may nothing distract us from the single-minded pursuit of eating your flesh and drinking your blood in the word of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.